0: you are listening to the bridge community church podcast out of warrenton virginia our church exists to connect you to god others and the marketplace for more information you can visit us online at bridge the number four life.com thank you for listening and we hope you are blessed by today's message Starting a new series today called Genesis: Foundations for an Unsteady World. And obviously, let me just say there's 50 chapters in Genesis. So this will not be a verse-by-verse verse, uh, uh, ser- sermon series because that would take approximately two years. So we'll be covering categorically some chapters in the book of Genesis because God gave some foundational principles that he expected his creation, which includes you and I to live by, and to operate by. So would everybody stand for the reading of the Word today, if you would? And let's just go to the very beginning. Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. Let's read together. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now Holy Spirit, I pray that as the Word is taught, that it helps us to not only appreciate what we have, but God to help us know how to function and how to live a life that you can bless, a life that you want us to have that flourishes. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, "Amen, Amen." amen. The Lord blessing. Be seated. So as we're doing this series, one of the things that I'll be doing is what I also did in the series on the Book of Psalms. There's a lot of things. Uh, about uh, this particular book and so when we did the book of Psalms I would tell you what I called the factoid and many times it absolutely had nothing to do with the message that I was preaching but it would help you to understand Uh, The reading of Psalms the next time. So I'm going to be doing the same thing here with the book of Genesis. I'm going to share some things. I call them just little factoids, interesting things that might help you to appreciate uh, the next time you read the book of Genesis and have a, a better understanding. One of those is this. So Genesis chapter 1 through 50 covers more chronological time than from Exodus until today. Bet you didn't know that. It's a, it's, it covers a vast amount of time. And so you have to realize that when you're reading this book, one chapter, you might take a leap of 500 years. All the other books of the Bible, you're only covering maybe 30, 40, 50 years. But in the book of Genesis, you could read a chapter and you just took a step of 500 years. And so you have to have somewhat of a little bit different mindset on the momentum in the timetable as it's occurring. So Genesis covers a lot, a lot of time. Another one was this. If you noticed in Genesis 1, it says six times and there was evening and there was morning. You know, if an American wrote this, we would have said and there was morning and evening. The reason it says there was evening and morning is because the Hebrews began the next day at sunset. We begin our next day at midnight, or when the, well, most of us are asleep at that time, so we begin our day when we wake up, but on the the Hebrews, uh, their calendar, the next day started as soon as the sun was set, so like last night, I was outside throwing the football with my grandson and about 7 o'clock, we couldn't see the ball anymore, and so he got hit in the face with the ball, and then he threw it to me, and it hit me, in the, the ball hit me in the face, and I said, you know, I think we're wrapped up here because I don't want to explain a black eye at church tomorrow. And so, technically, by their calendar, the next, today would have started at 7 o'clock last night. So it's just a little, it has absolutely nothing with what, to do with what I'm preaching today. I just thought you wanted to know that. So it just again, it just kind of helps you on this uh, mindset, but as we're looking specifically at the passage today, I want you to recognize that in the formation of creation as described in Genesis 1 and 2, and that's where we're going to spend most of the day today, I'm sp- going to cover those two chapters, God established a number of principles as a part of His creation. And that's one of the things that I'll be unpacking today. But these principles were, what I want you to see were, they were given before sin enter creation. So we know that these principles transcend uh, not only just the paradise, as we would call it, the Garden of Eden, but even continued after sin. But the intent of these principles was to show man how to live in God's creation, how to enjoy it, and how to be productive. And what I want you to recognize is we're still in pursuit of that. Even though sin entered creation, Sin, uh, or I should say, when sin entered creation, sin directly challenged these creation principles of how to live, how to enjoy, and how to be productive. But sin corrupted our desire to obey those principles, and sin complicated the process to enjoy God's creation. But the principles are still the same. They God didn't say, "Whoops, we're going to have to make an adjustment here." No, God just said they're still the same principles. They still are, are a part of what I expect you to do. And so God never changed these initial principles on how man was to live in God's creation, how man was to enjoy it, and how man was to be productive. God didn't change his principle, goes, Well, now I gotta account for the fact that you all messed up the plan. Now, God did address sin. Right? And we know that through the coming of Christ, and, and, and we know that through his death and resurrection. But the principles of being, of how to live, how to enjoy life, and, and how to be productive you can go on Amazon, you can go to any bookstore, and you will find scores of books telling you how to maximize your effectiveness, how to maximize your living, how to, how to reach the utmost potential. And I just want to say, you know, if we just back it all the way up into Genesis, God already told us all that. But the challenge has been this, sin complicated it, and some of his principles, we have a way of thinking that uh, because they're complicated, that they're no longer relevant. So let me give you an example. You realize that God gave man a job to do, and that was before the fall of man. God had a job for man to do in paradise. It's just sin complicated it, and it says, now we do it by the sweat of our brow, and now we also struggle with the fact that I don't want to work forever. Well, I got news for you. When you go to heaven, you're going to work forever. There's no retirement plan. There's all that. And, but here's the thing. Uh, having to do it with the complications and having to do it by the sweat of our brow won't be a part of the picture. But I, there's going to be more in heaven than just playing your harp. And I've heard some of you play an instrument and harp's not up your alley. <laughs> But anyway, I say that just so that you can understand that there are things that God gave us that are really for eternity. It's a a part of being in his creation. So we're going to look at five principles today. So number one, I'm going to ask everybody to read it out loud. Creation is a product of God's activity. I don't expect that point to produce any kind of aha But inside of this, as I explain it, I want you hopefully to see that there is a little bit of, I call it an aha, experience or a moment. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Notice the word hovering in the Hebrew. It actually means this, it means to be relaxed, it means to move, to flutter, to somewhat shake. This is not something violent, this is something along the lines of caressing, almost like an artist would have a piece of clay, or a piece of art, or a canvas, and they would nurture because they realize what is about to occur in front of them is going to be awesome, and they're excited, and so you don't find the artist beating the canvas, you find the artist caressing the canvas because of what they're about to do or to take something and they begin to just stroke that, that, that object as because of what they intend to create out of that. And so it's telling us that God wasn't violent. God was gentle because God was seeing what was possible and he was taking in the joy and the excitement. God didn't come with a hammer and a saw and a drill, and dynamite. God came with his hands, and he saw this formless void, this, this empty, this, and he was just going, wow, this is going to be good. Wait till you see what I'm about to do with this. And then as you move on into the other language, what we see here is this, is God is deciding and God is designing, and then God speaks creation into existence. He says it nine times in Genesis 1. And then it says that God created. And you say, well, I don't see how you got all that out of that one word hovering, because it's the next word. The, Greek, the Hebrew word for created is actually a sculpting, carving term. God didn't beat the world into existence he didn't put it on the anvil and apply all the uh, fire and start hammering away and saying man i hope this works out no god took it and he began to take his he sculpted he carved and it's really true we sometimes say this but i think it's an accurate theological statement based on this that as you look in nature as you look at creation you can see the handprints and the fingerprints of god on a beautiful day, you can walk out here on this side area, of this church out here. if you've ever been out here on a blue sky day, how many have seen the Blue Ridge Mountains? By the way, let me just tell you it's an awesome place to write a sermon but but yeah, you look out there and you and you just go there is there is no way that that just was punched into that was That was God fashioning, God forming, that was was God dragging his fingers, that was God pushing, and God saying, hey, we need a mountain range over here. And it was like sand, it's like you take your hand and you go, ah, there's my mountain range, oh, there's my car. This world has the fingerprints and the handprints of God all over it. And let me just tell you, when you see the world that way, you naturally want to take care of it not because some of you, you need to be more ecological or you need to be more sensitive in your care of nature you're just like man this is God's world he created it it's this is his masterpiece why wouldn't i want to take care of it you hear me now as we move on and we begin to look at this a little further there's some phraseology that i want you to notice but Summing up this uh, particular point is this, the opposite of of God creating the universe, which is creationism, is crediting the creation of the universe to some mysterious cosmic force or to some other being. If you're not going to buy into the fact that God created this, this world and God sculpted it, that God carved it, so you have to explain how it happened because this is a magnificent world it is perfectly spinning around the the sun we have a moon that is perfectly set in its orbit and its spin and it controls the tides of the world you you go into the other planets they're perfectly orbiting we don't have to worry about mars crashing into us everything maintains its perfect order this this earth if it tilts 1 degree too far it'll freeze everything if it tilts too far the other way one, just one degree, we all burn up. Who set that masterpiece in place? Who gave it the perfect spin? Who gave it the perfect rotation? Some people say, well, I just believe all these gases collided and boom, there was explosions. I go, no, God sculpted it. Do you all see our theology is severely different than, than the other interpretations? We say God sculpted this place. That would be like taking the pieces of a watch, putting it in a bag, and shaking it up. And maybe on the billionth time, a perfectly timed watch comes out. You could shake it a billion times. You could shake it two billion. You could shake it a trillion times. There is no way the pieces of a watch will ever find their place and ever get synchronized. Somebody has to sit down and orchestrate it. It's too intricate to leave it to the shaking of the bag. And by the way, the world's a lot more complicated than a watch, if you haven't discovered that by now. So we say creation is a, is a product of God's activity. This is crucial for us to have as a foundation, because it's gonna, we're going to know the second thing is. Everybody read this out loud. Man is... And again, I don't expect necessarily that to be the aha but inside of this, I want you to recognize, he says, Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Verse 27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. And I want you to see the phraseology, let us. So God is talking to somebody. Who's he talking to? Well, we, some people, oh, the angels. God never gave creative power to the angels. He only gave power to the angels to do his bidding but the creation was left to god and we believe this is where he is talking to the father the father is talking to the son and the holy spirit and he's saying by the way we saw that the spirit was hovering over the earth right so we know that so we know that there's a a godhead interaction on let's sculpt this thing but here's this catch this if you're going to manage his creation then you're going to have to have some of the qualities that God has to manage his stuff. Does that make sense? If I'm going to manage God's stuff, if I'm going to interact in God's stuff, then he's got to give me something of who he is because I'm going to need his skill. I'm going to need some of who he is. And it goes back to this. Do you recognize by being made in the image of God what that actually means? And let me just point this out. The word image has been so distorted in Christian circles, and there's a huge amount of efforts that are going into this to, quote, redefine theology. I'm just going to call it a woke theology. And they're using this phraseology to distort the imagery of who God is because it says that he created them as male and female. And so they want to somehow assign some kind of gender confusion even onto God. And here's the thing. They are using phraseology based on American terminology. Let me give you a shocker. It was written in Hebrew. And it was not written in the United States. So we might want to go back to the original language and see the word image here comes from the Hebrew word. And it means this. It means means to resemble in reason personality intellect it means the capacity to relate hear see speak so let me let me expand this a little further so you have a better understanding some of you who are parents have had this conversation I'm sure when your daughter does something the mother may look at her daughter and go you are just like your dad right now now, you're not saying that she looks like her dad and that she's... Ma- you're, not, you're not trying to cause gender confusion. You're, what you're just saying is, is you're acting and you're thinking like him. And of course, the dad, when he has the daughter or son, he'll, you know, where's your mother? She's not here. You're acting just like your mother. He's not implying that there's some type of femininity assigned to his son at that particular moment he's not even saying that you look like her and the mother's not even saying that she that the daughter looks like her they're just saying you're acting behaviorally speaking you have some of the qualities you may even have some of the skills and the word image that's what it's talking about and it says that god has deposited his qualities in men and women Y'all with me? We have a tendency to want to take the image and go the gender route. No, he's talking about the skill, the quality, and the characteristics. By the way, here's a great example of this, even in the New Testament with Jesus. This is in the Gospel of Matthew. He's looking at Jerusalem. He's, he's approaching his death and resurrection moment. And as he's standing, he's looking at he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I long to draw you as my children, as a hen does her chicks now he is using listen to me Jesus is using a femininity illustration a hen right now there's people who are running off with that saying that Jesus was hinting that he had some gender femininity no he was saying I have some of the qualities of nurturing and caring how many know men can be nurturing and caring you do know that men can be nurturing and caring, right? <laughs> that is by no means a compromise or a weakness. It's actually a strength. And so this has been so distorted. It's it's and I guess it's so simple. Just if you'll if if people will stop starting with American culture as as to define what the scripture means. We need to go to where the scripture was written and see what it was defined then and bring it into our world. So listen to me. Men and women, each of you have characteristics and qualities that God has put in. Why? Because you can't run his creation if you don't have some of his skill set on how you see things. And by the way, that's, that's one of the reasons, if you haven't discovered by now, men and women see the world a little bit differently than each other. I heard the women. I didn't hear it from the men. It was women, yeah, amen. The men were like, whatever she says. So, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, it says, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. So, what I want to point out here is this. Everything that God created, he spoke into existence. This is the only part of creation where God takes another part of creation called dust. And God says, no sculpting. I'm going to breathe into this one. It's the only part of creation that God says, everything else gets my artistic handiwork. But man... I'm going to give him a part of me that I never gave the rest of creation. My breath. Now, that may not have significance to you. So, would you like to know? Okay. Well, it just so happens that I'm prepared for that. 2 <laughs> Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is what? Wow. So man was God-breathed, and now we read that the Bible is God-breathed. Isn't that interesting? And it goes on to say, it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The emphasis there being God-breathed. Man is God-breathed, and his, and his word is God-breathed. So the Bible is beginning to illustrate to us that we are not just physical beings, we are also spiritual beings. One of the questions I think everybody has to figure out for themselves, now if you have struggles I can give you the right answer, but the struggle is this, are we physical human, are we physical beings having a spiritual experience or are we spiritual beings having a physical experience? See I believe we existed before, we're having a physical experience and then we're going to go back to being spirit beings. Well, if, if that spirit being is as real as my physical body, then how do I nurture that spirit being? Because I already know how to phys- physically nurture the body. It's called get something to eat and get something to drink. And when you do too much of that, you need to go run and exercise. Okay? So I already know how to take care of the physical body, right? But how do I take care of the spiritual man? Well, the spiritual man needs a fresh breath every once in a while. y'all see what i'm holding up right here is your fresh breath it's god breathed. now with that you can appreciate what jesus did during his temptation of forty days and forty nights in the wilderness because when he was tempted by satan after forty days the first temptation was this he said came to him and said if you are the son of god tell these stones to become bread so immediately satan comes to jesus after forty days and forty nights in the wilderness and we know because another uh, passage says he went into the wilderness full of the Spirit. Okay? So, we, what we have here is this. That desert experience was designed to feed his Spirit. However... The physical man is suffering while the spirit man is being filled. And so Satan immediately tries to distract Jesus away from the spiritual man and say, your stomach is hungry. Turn some of these stones into bread and satisfy yourself. And Jesus says this and we often go, not sure everything he was saying here, but amen, praise God it worked. Look what he said. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He was saying, listen, You're wanting me to take care of my stomach. My stomach's fine. But this experience in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, that was taking care of the spiritual man. You're trying to get me to make my life just about my stomach. And I'm telling you, I have recognized it's not just my stomach, it's my spirit man as well. Do you see that? Why? Because it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. You're God-breathed. And by the way, what's the opposite of that? The opposite of that is being created in the, the opposite of being created in the image of God is the evolution of man from other life forms. In other words, you're a descendant of a piece of slime that crawled up on a rock a billion years ago. You're a descendant of a creature in the animal kingdom that somehow evolved. You are a, a, a well-developed ape. Now, that'll inspire you to go after life. That'll that'll bring purpose and meaning. But what if you tell people you've been made in the image of God? And he, yeah, you were dirt. And then God breathed into you. You are divinely created. You are sculpted and fashioned by God. I'm telling you there's something that's something that'll get you out of bed in the morning that's something that you can use to combat depression that's something that you can use to combat self-pity that hey I carry I carry the handprints of God I carry the, I carry the breath of God in me I've been assigned a destiny. I've been assigned to time. Because again, you come back to, if we're going to function in a creation that he created, then God's going to have to equip us to do that. Otherwise, this, this creation will abuse it or it'll overwhelm us. We won't know what we're doing. But with a divine mandate and divine principles, we know, amen? Number three, read it out loud. Man is to work and care for God's creation. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Yeah, work is worship. I've said that before. And this is where this theology comes from, but I've never had the time to unpack all of it. And I hope you begin to see some things here that'll help you to value your work. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule. So let me just pause there. Do you see... Why he had to make us in his image? Because of what he was asking us to do. If we're going to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the air and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground, it says if you're going to do that, then you have to be made my likeness. In other words, God's saying, I created it and I know how to manage it. And if you're going to do it and I'm going to turn it over to you, you better have some of my skill in you that's what that verse is saying let us make mankind our image in our likeness so that they may rule and and let me point out do you see the word wild animals we somehow think God so perfected the world that nothing needed to be done God says No, nah, I got a couple animals you don't know uh, They're left from the right and I'm gonna leave them that way and give them to you I got some wild animals that need to be tamed I got some issues in creation Yes, God could have done that and handed it over, but God wanted us to be a part of what he was doing. Many of you, again, have sons and daughters, and you know what it's like to invite them in to help you on a project. Now, you really don't need their help. It's okay if you say, amen, moms and dads. But yet you invite them, they, they, they take longer, they're slower, they're asking questions, why do we do it that way? And then you explain, well, my shop teacher at school said, well, and I heard, that, and, and, and the guy next door said, he never understood why you do it that way. And so you, and, and you're doing it not because it's more efficient, you're doing it because you want them to have a sense of identity and a sense of accomplishment And it's also an opportunity, a chance for you to bond. So you're bringing them in because you want them to have some skin in the game and build some relationship out of it. And God's the same way. God says, I created the world. I could have created it where you never had to do anything. But God's like, what fun is that? So I'm going to leave some things that need to be fixed. There's going to be things that need to be planted. There's going to be things that need to be grown. Hey, I put everything together. I didn't even name anything. I'm going to let you do it all. I even got some wild animals. They don't know what they're supposed to do, so I'm going to put you there, and your job is to catch them and train them. Show them what they're supposed to do. Help them to do that. And the word rule says means to reign, subjugate, have dominion. So it means to take charge. God expects us to take charge of his creation. Later on, he uses the same words when he says, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth, subdue it. And then he says the word again, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So this means, again, to make subservient, to have dominion. Now, if we this goes back to the beginning. If I understand that this is his masterpiece, then I'm going to do that in a way that is extremely respectful so that other generations have the same opportunity and same joy. I'm not driven by political correctness. I'm driven by my faith that I, am, I have inherited God's masterpiece. I want to manage it well, and I want the next generation to have the same opportunity. I am not worshiping creation. I'm honoring my God by taking care of his stuff. Does everybody see that? The world wants to distort things and turn things into a mindset that we worship nature. No. No, we don't worship nature. We worship the God who created it. But you know what? It is his masterpiece. And I do want to honor his masterpiece. I want to take care of it. It's a a family heirloom. I want to hand it off right. I want them to be able to derive the joy and the satisfaction and the freedom just as much as I have. I don't want to hand off problems to them that I created. Come on. All right. He also says this. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. All right. I'm just going to say it up front. Here comes your aha. You ready for this? Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Here's, catch this. The word work, we often, we often hear it as, yeah, it's that thing you got to do until you can get to retirement and really enjoy life. What if work is the enjoyment? Some of you went, God help me. (laughs) Look at this. This word is often, as you go through the Old Testament, this word is often connected to religious service deemed as worship. When the priest and the Levitical priesthood would serve at the temple, you have all these animals that are coming to be sacrificed for people who have sin? listen man bringing all those animals in there was a lot of cleanup that had to happen just by bringing animals in there was an organization structure that had to happen because you had multiple priests who were offering sacrifices and so they would have multiple lines that you could go to a priest to have your animal sacrifice there was the altar, and those animals produced huge amounts of ash and somebody Had to make room for other sacrifices by going up and shoveling the ash and the wood that was being used to help burn all these sacrifices. It was a lot of work. There was a lot of organization going on. Working at the temple was not an easy job. You had to know how to herd people, herd animals, how to sacrifice them, how to lift them up, how to pray the prayer, and then when you were done, clean up the mess. And it was just repetitive. And so the word work here is a religious work. Get this. God sees your work as a spiritual thing. You say, well, how does he do that? Hang on, I'm going to get you there. Then he uses the word take care because the word take care is also used later in the Old Testament. And it's used in the context of the Levitical responsibility of guarding sacred space as well as observing religious commands and responsibilities so take care of was these Levitical priests who would stay at the front of the temple and guard it that this is sacred space so certain things are not allowed in certain expressions are not allowed because when you cross this threshold you come into sacred space are you all starting to catch this you and I are managing God's sacred space We just thought it was a building. God said, creation is my sacred space. Take care of it. Work it. By the way, this is why in the New Testament it says that we're all a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Everybody said, aha. Yeah, why? Because just by being in this world, he says, you are working. I'm getting ahead of myself here. I'm, in, I'm trying to decide what to leave in and what to keep in. Here we go. So here we go. Let me, let me explain it a little further. Number four, read it out loud. Man is to rest from his garden work as a form of worship. You say, wow. So this ties in with the work, okay? That creation is his sacred space, God's sacred space. Why? It says in Genesis 2, verses 2 through 3, by the seventh day, God had finished the work his holy work right he had been doing so on the seventh day he rested from his work he rested from his levitical his work in his garden everybody got me catch this then god blessed the seventh day and made it what it's the only day he called holy all the other days he said it's good that's a special word. The word spe- holy means this. Translated means like, I'm going to put it. This is like you telling your kids, "Now you need to do X, Y, X, Y, X, Y, Z. Now, this is really important. This is really important. So listen especially to what I'm about to say. It's like God putting an exclamation point and a special focus saying, now, I know you've caught everything I, I've said, but this is like critical because if you fail here, it, it collapses everything. So when God said it was holy, he was saying, please pay attention. Then God blessed the seventh day, made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. We kind of go, wow. So the debate then becomes rest. What does that look like? You know, is that like where I lay on the couch on Sunday and just watch football? And the hardest thing I do is Am I going to eat five wings or six wings with mild or hot sauce? I mean, that's the big decision of the day. You know, Is that, is that like rest? My wife says, hey, you need to, ah, resting. I'm having a holy moment over here. I can't do that. I'm having a holy, a spiritual experience right now. And then she says, well, then I guess none of us are eating today. Woo. And you say, well, that's why we eat out. Oh, so we make other. See, I'm just saying, you realize how we sometimes interpret rest creates a lot of complications. So, what's going on here? Let me explain it. God not only set up the world to function as his environment for the people he created, but also as a sanctuary for himself. What if I told you initially that creation was God's sanctuary? made it holy. God said, I'm resting from my work because now it's time to enjoy the sanctuary that I've created. David did a lot of this in the book of Psalms. Isaiah, there's a couple, there's so many passages I could have pointed out. I'm just going to give you one. Isaiah 66:1 one says, this is what the Lord says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Do you see the imagery there? God says creation is my sanctuary. And I've put you as priest to work it and take care of it. And then sin messed it up. Sin came in and messed up the holy sanctuary. Well then you go into the New Test- or the Old Testament, we read later, that he gave a temple, he created a tabernacle for the Israelites to have so that they would go, that's where God lives. Remember that? And they could pack it up and take with them and it was the pillar of fire or the cloud at night or the cloud during the day, the pillar of fire at night. They could know that, you know, whether God, oh God's moving, we got to go. And then when God stopped, they would put up the tabernacle. Then they built the temple and then that got destroyed. So what we have here is this. Rest is the principal function of a temple. It's where the deity found rest. Since his temple, his sanctuary had been corrupted, God came up with a smaller version. And then that got corrupted. So where's God's temple today? It's you and me. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So, boy, I hope you catch this. I hope I've said this in a way that you catch it and just, okay, now you understand. I rest because this is his temple now. God says, Let me enjoy my creation. That's you. Please tell me you understand that. God took rest on the seventh day so that he could enjoy his creation because it was his sanctuary. Sin ruined it. God put up a building, a temple and said, keep it holy. They didn't. They ruined it. And God says, give me a place to enjoy my creation on my day of rest. And he said, then I'll take you. I rest so that God can enjoy. Leave it to Americans to make the day of rest about themselves. I rest because I need to rejuvenate my batteries so that I can be more effective tomorrow. We just always have a way of making it about us. And it's about him. And you know what? Yeah, you're right. I get my batteries recharged. And yeah, I get get re-energized. Yeah, it's good for me to take a break because I become more effective over the next six days. Yes, yes, I agree with you. But the primary reason is this. God says, I need you to rest because God says, you're my my temple. And I want to enjoy you. So stop working the garden. And everybody said "Amen." amen. Doesn't that change the perspective of rest? It's not something, do I have to? When you understand that, you go, oh yeah. I want to do that. I want to rest so God can enjoy. And I don't know about you, but I've learned this. When God enjoys something that I do, somehow I always benefit from that. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things get added. Last one, maybe. Everybody read it out loud. A man and woman living in marital covenant with one another is a... So let's go back again, Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. I want you to recognize something. God, this is all before sin here. Sin doesn't show up until Genesis chapter 3. And it's the only thing that God made in creation. He said this is not good. notice that? Everything he made was good. Here he says this is not good. You see, the, God the Father had the Son and the Holy Spirit. He says every breathing animal had a companion, but man has no one. And so as you move on through, you see in Genesis 2, verses 22 through 24, Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united with to his wife and they become one flesh this is absolutely crucial because of the kind of day that we're living in this is the order that god established before sin you can make a case eternity because at this point man was to live forever it was because of sin that death entered the picture So in eternity, God established man, woman, marital covenant. And like anything else, man, after the fall and sin, man has done nothing but play in the fringes of going, there's just got to be some other ways that we can do this. Does God really expect us to stay in the lanes? And let me just tell you, yes, he does. It's like telling your kid to mow the grass, and you come home, and he's cut grass, and he has cut words into your yard. Like, help me. Pay me. And you're like, what's so hard about mowing in a straight line? Well, I just decided, you know, that was too boring. I wanted to be creative. You're like, I don't need you to be creative. I need you to get rid of the messaging that you put in the grass. I need you to cut the yard in straight lines. Stay in the lane. I don't want to be communicating messages to airplanes that fly over. I don't want to be communicating messages to the neighbors. Just cut the grass. I know, but I was just what You know, man does the same thing. We just play in the fringes. Well, there's just got to be other ways. And now we live in a, a day when there's this, I call it just really just straight up. I just call it woke theology now churches are shifting and redefining this very principle and I you just got to know as a pastor I'm not untouched by that I have friends who are in our fellowship and friends outside the fellowship who say you're not still holding to that stuff are you and I go yeah can you tell me why well come on we've moved so far beyond that man I mean I have some material that you can read I said material I don't need to read an opinion man it just go into the Hebrew it's real simple You're you're avoiding the language that this stuff was written in, and you're playing in the margins of particular authors and theologians who aren't even They aren't even being good theologians in doing this. They're way off, and we don't recognize. Listen, we don't recognize the unraveling of the theology that we preach, because even in Ephesians chapter five, verses twenty-five through twenty-seven. Paul wrote this husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless do you see the very definitive pronouns there and he did not say significant other and I don't say things to be sarcastic I don't say things to be nasty I'm not saying things to put people down But we need to understand our Bible is not vague. It is very, very clear. God said our marriages, man and a woman, mirror his relationship that he has with the church. That's what's different. Our marriages are more than a contract. They're a covenant, man. They're a mirror of who God is or who Christ is with his church. And when we start to play in these fringes, we are unraveling the gospel. And if we unravel the gospel, then why should anybody listen to us? There's no change. You're just like us. So I I know you get pressure. I get it. And they go, well, let me. I I often use this as a phrase. How do you explain the the wording of the Hebrew? It's just so clear. You're, you're, you're buying into a woke theology. I'll wrap this up. This could have been written yesterday. The Apostle Paul was facing challenges when, in his day of preaching. First Galatians, or Galatians 1, 6 through 9. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a gift, different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. I mean, that could have been written yesterday. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one preached to you, let them be under God's curse. Do you see the exclamation point? He's not giving a suggestion. He is making a very definitive statement. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than the one you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Exclamation point. Very definitive. Now we wrap this up. I don't distance myself from people who believe differently on this matter. Shunning is never a way to win somebody over. I love to engage in, but listen, I'll have a conversation, but what I won't have is an argument. I'll be respectful and I will listen to them. A couple weeks ago, I had the opportunity to sit with somebody who had brought this whole matter up to me. And I, we were pointing, I was pointing some things out in the scripture and they kept pointing to traditions and church fathers. And I said, listen, I'm, I'm not one of those guys. I'm going to the scripture. Can you go to the scripture with me? Stick with the Scripture, please. I don't recognize church fathers and church traditions as authoritative and being equal with Scripture. I'm sticking with Scripture. And I asked him. I said, "What do you do with this?" What I. What do you do with this? He said, "I'll get back to you." He has it I want him to, not so I can pick up the pick up an argument. No, I. I really listen. I believe that people have a right to choose i might disagree with their choice but i'm not about away taking their choice but i'm also about this are you aware of the consequences associated with that type of decision are you aware and the other part is this as followers of christ my marriage your marriage m- meaning man and woman illustrates christ's relationship to the church I will not sacrifice that. And I'm sorry, I will not apologize for it. Because my, listen, you go back to the garden. We are a priest working his sanctuary. That comes with a holy calling. And that means we live a holy life. And that makes us different. And everybody said amen.